when you study Buddhism, Hinduism, other tradition outside of you know, say Christianity, you can really highlight the uniqueness, the difference between Christianity and other traditions, but also the, the common ground, right? That, that there's a lot of um, common ideas, maybe ideas of ethics or virtue that you can actually compare and say, well, they agree on this. It's not that they're the same. And so studying mm. another language uh, helps you learn your own language. Studying another religion helps you learn your own language. All right, everyone. So today's guest is John Shaw. John is a professor at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. If you don't know where that is, uh, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a little bit cold, but hey, I'm used to it by now. Right, <laughs> Minnesota, Minnesota December. It's always a uh, always a little bit cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to give people a little bit of an intro on kind of the work you're doing right now, um, and then I'll kind of cue some more questions about your story and what you've been doing. Yeah, sure. Well, right now I'm in the uh, religion department at Gustavus, and I teach uh, courses like World Religions, which is a survey course on the you know, major religions in the world. And I teach more specialized topics, uh, specifically in Zen, Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, and Hindu philosophy. So I'm mostly in Asia, Southeast South Asia and East Asian traditions I teach. Sweet. Um, well, I want to dive into that because I want to, I know you got a cool backstory because I heard from, uh, from my cousin. So, um, oh, really? Oh, I forgot what I told her. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dive in a bit. So just the history of how you got to where you are today. I know it's a, it's probably a lot of stories, twists and turns, but if I'm correct, you grew up um, a Buddhist. Is that correct? Uh, I didn't grow up culture. a Buddhist. Yeah, not. Right. I didn't grow up a Buddhist. My parents are agnostic slash atheist. Uh, they okay. uh, immigrated from Korea, but in my mom's family, uh, on her sister's side, she has several Buddhists. You know, family members who are Buddhists, and I kind of knew about it, but I kind of grew up with no um, specific faith. And actually, when I was uh, my last year in high school, and I started in college. I started inquiring. You know, I, you're, when you were telling me your story, it sounds very familiar. I was thinking, well, what is this Buddhism? I have some family members who are Buddhists. I started reading about Zen and other meditative traditions. And I kind of you know, struggled the first couple of years uh, trying to teach myself Buddhism and meditation. Interesting. Okay, so it wasn't until really high school, college that you started asking yourself questions about it. Right, right. And what did that, what did that process kind of look like? Because you were going from from pretty much nothing and then you had to start asking yourself questions so what questions were you starting to kind of task yourself or to ask others or your your family members or relatives well my father my father uh was a professor too at uh, quincy college and we lived in quincy illinois i grew up in chicago but he got a job in quincy illinois at a, a catholic college and uh, we were i was about maybe 11 or 12 when we moved and but like I said, like by the time I was 18, I started inquiring and my dad was a historian of East Asian culture. So he kind of knew had academic knowledge about uh, Buddhism and history. So, you know, he would teach me some of that, uh, the history and the development of Buddhism. But it wasn't enough. I really wanted to get into the practice and see if it's a way of life that would make sense for me. So I, there was no Zen or Buddhist uh, centers around in Quincy, Illinois. It's a small Southern Illinois town. And... Um, so I had to basically teach myself. I buy books on meditation, which weren't a lot. I mean, unlike today, there's a whole yeah, there's a and lot out YouTube, there. Right? You go to YouTube and learn all. There's nothing like that uh, when I was uh, uh, that age. And so I basically um, just started sitting. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing for uh, several years. And it wasn't until it was, um, 
my junior year, I visited my cousin in New York and um, junior in college. And okay. uh, he was in New York. That was the you know, cultural epicenter. And there were several uh, Buddhist uh, temples. Cat is trying to climb on me. Um, and I actually um, I looked up a Zen center. It's called the Soho Zendo in Soho Village. And I went there, and I was there for about a month, so I went to the beginner's class, and that's when I really learned, got my first instruction in Zen Buddhism. Um, I had to go back to Quincy to finish up uh, college, and so I had no teacher then, but the uh, Zen teacher there said, well, read this book and keep sitting. You know? And uh, there's a lot of twists and turns, but I eventually decided to go to graduate school uh, in um, a religion, uh, Eastern religions. And uh, when I was in grad, I went to Northwestern University in Evanston, and that's when I really took up the practice of Buddhism. There were a couple of Zen centers. I joined one, um, remained a member for a few years. I joined another Buddhist center in Chicago for a little while. And um, my last several years as a graduate student, I met a, actually a teacher. She was coming back to school. She was older. She was coming back to school, getting her degree in uh, Buddhist studies. And uh, I started learning insight meditation from her. So she became my primary teacher for the last I don't know, several years of graduate school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I was introduced to meditation in such a different world, I feel like, than you were because, again, that information is so out there. So how I've been learning about it has been all these specific types and the science behind them and all this different stuff, but you were more just like exploring it from a broader lens and then you seem to have narrow as you got older. Yeah, that's what happened, and I was really in the dark for a number of years, like I said. And um, all the information you get now is so interesting. Everything from the culture, different practices, the neuroscience in meditation. Yeah. I think that's so, so interesting right now. I kind of wish I had that, but at the same time, I think I had to struggle to, you know, kind of find myself, if you will. So, yeah. Yeah, time. I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, so Richard oh, Davidson yes. is, the, is the big neuroscience uh, king there and his works. Right. It's just awesome that we have access to some of that work in the world. So did you study abroad from uh, Madison or were you out of school when you went to? Uh, yep. No, Madison. from Madison. Yep. So that's when I first uh, was in Southeast Asia and experienced some of these things and started to ask questions. And since coming back, I've looked into a lot of types of meditation. And actually, can you describe to me a bit what insight meditation, what that means? Because I'm I, I've heard of it, but I don't know the exact how it would be described, that type of meditation. Right. It's, it's a meditation system from the Theravada tradition. You said you learned the basic schools, right? So this comes from the Theravada tradition. I believe it was in the 19th century in what was then Burma that a monk began developing a meditation system that could be uh, applicable to lay people. And insight meditation right now is basically a 10-day course. You meditate um, maybe 10 hours a day. And basically what you're doing is developing concentration in the beginning, but then you develop what's called insight. And that's developing mindfulness of different uh, mind states, bodily sensations, concepts. And you basically watch, uh, observe all these different phenomena in the mind and body. And um, a very interesting uh, um, meditation system. I came to it after doing years of Zen. So it was really a different kind of uh, meditative uh, uh, method when I started learning inside meditation. Hmm. And do you still do one of those two today or do you do some, any, anything else of that, like of the meditation practices? Yeah, I still uh, meditate. Um, what I'm trying to do is um, incorporate it more and more in daily life. 
So even though I, I sit usually at some period of time, it's when I go to the office, for instance, I, you know, I kind of remind myself, you know, let's be mindful and aware uh, before teaching or before a faculty meeting, all these different um, daily things I have to go through in, in my job. Not go through, I enjoy my job. Uh, but again, trying to maintain mindfulness or awareness during the everyday life is, is uh, sort of what I'm trying to do right now. I've been doing, trying to do this for a number of years. And uh, that's really difficult. It's, it's yeah. easier to sit somewhere when nobody's around, nobody's there that you're annoyed with, right? <laughs> and you can listen to music or just sit down and just watch your breath. Or it's it's um, good to do, but it's very easy. It's when you get out into the world and, and uh, work with people and relationships and professional and other contexts that mindfulness can uh, go away very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very true. Um, for, for somebody who's listening who doesn't uh, meditate at all or hasn't really heard of a, a good reason what would you have like a sort of a pitch or a reason or a why that you say somebody should try it or practice it or at least give it a go or research a bit about it right right i think there's a lot of benefits uh, especially initially um for me i was always um kind of scatterbrained and i was actually kind of an angry kid especially through junior high and high school <laughs> and i was my personality was really different than it is now and um, when I started learning about Buddhism and the uh, calming of the mind, I thought this is a good thing to do, uh, not just in terms of a religion, but even a practical uh, method. And so basically, you will begin to calm down more if you do some sort of um, simple practice like watching or experiencing breath. Um, you are able to hold off and reacting to situations. So instead of, you know, um, just sort of reacting and going off the handle, you can step back a little bit and, and remain relatively calm. And perhaps if there's some sort of tension with somebody or conflict, you're better able to deal with that. And so, and again, just generally dealing with stress. It's not that, I'm not saying I don't go through stress, but when I'm really stressed, I'm able to step back, take a breath. And it's like a resource for me to kind of balance my life out every, in you know, these everyday situations. And so the immediate effect will be very practical. Right. I would, I, that would, I would recommend that. That would be a, as a good thing for anybody, whether or not you're religious. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it is, yeah, it is interesting. I'm always curious how people associate it with religion because, you know, I mentioned I grew up in a Lutheran community and even sometimes right. I've told people that I meditate mm -hmm. and uh, they're kind of right away. They're like, well, you know, I pray and it's like, well, you can, you can do both. You can, yes, you can pray and meditate. They're not, you know, mutually exclusive things, but, but cool. Yeah. I, I would agree with, with those statements. I feel like just, there's a lot of things that can stress us out in life and using it, mm -hmm. that as a way to kind of recenter ourselves. Um, cool. So going back to now your evolution here. So you're learning inside meditation, you have mm -hmm. a teacher mm -hmm. and what happened post-grad? Like what, what happened in that time where now you're graduated with your degree in religion? Mm -hmm. How do you ha fill in the gap for me here? Now you're a professor teaching it uh, right. to many so students. I, right. So when I left uh, graduate school, uh, you know, looking for a job, and you know, I started teaching part-time. And I, mean, I stayed in contact with the, the teacher who was teaching me inside meditation for maybe another two years. But um, once I got to Gustavus and started working, uh, um, you know, I'm a, I was a tenure-track physician full-time. Uh, very fortunate, by the way, to get something like this. Um, I thought I could just do it by myself. So I kind of 
became more independent. I kept meditating. So I've been here for, wow, almost, yeah, this is my 22nd year in this space. Wow, and so, congrats. Yeah, so I've been, oh, thank you. So I've been developing um, very slowly, very gradually, you know, um, uh, trying a meditative mindset uh, throughout my experiences when I teach, when I work with other colleagues. And, uh, and I have a daughter, too. And uh, so meditation helped in all of that. When she was born, I was ecstatic, of course. But I think I probably didn't get as worried as other parents would have in the first years, especially in a lot. I mean, I did get worried, of course, but I had a way of staying calm. And I think it even helped her a little bit because, you know, we, we talk a lot and she says that I can be a calming influence sometimes. As a, sometimes. At least, dad, <laughs> at least for a dad, right? We, <laughs> anyway, so I think that that has also helped um, in all different areas of my life. So I've been doing... Um, this mindfulness practice, um, you know, since I've been here in the States to trying to apply it to everyday life. Cool. And uh, so somewhere in between there, um, and I don't know if I have all my facts straight, but I, I think what I heard from my cousin is that you met a Catholic girl. Is this correct? Yes. Um, this was in graduate school. So I was working okay. with a literature teacher and I met a Catholic girl, and I also um, took a course on Christian theology, and they covered some Christian mystics. And so I started reading, like, Meister Eckhart, for instance, um, a, a um, 13th century Dominican uh, mystic, and I was just completely blown away, you know, because I used to have, I grew up with a view, ah, Christianity, it's mainstream, who cares, where's the spirituality? And I had these presuppositions about the Christian traditions, and once I took a course and expanded my mind, I started reading the mystical tradition. It really influenced me. And so eventually I did join the Catholic uh, Church. I went through a whole year of reflection, went through the baptism. So officially I became Catholic, but I was still meditating. I was still um, uh, a student of this teacher. And she was fine. <laughs> you know, she's, it, it's, you know, it, it's another framework and it's something for you. You can discipline yourself using meditation to be you know, a better Christian or a better Catholic. So for a while, um, you know, anyway, I got married in a Catholic family. And so we were both Christian for a while, but my wife eventually started learning meditation from this teacher. And so when we moved here to Gustavus, she kept on meditating and she really felt like she wasn't so Catholic anymore because she grew up Catholic. It was more of a cultural thing. It wasn't, and she never converted. So eventually we never officially you know, broke with the church or anything dramatic like that, but we kind of decided we're more Buddhist in our outlook. So, hmm. yeah, I don't, I guess I'm still officially Catholic, but, <laughs> oh. but yeah, just a, but just I a think, title. But to be, I was, at some point I, I really reflected and I was trying to be honest with myself to what extent am I deeply Christian? I totally value, I mean, the, the Christian tradition, the Catholic church. I know there are a lot of issues and, there are a lot of politics and corruption in any institution, but in terms of the, the doctrine and the um, deep spirituality that I think is still there, I, I value that very much. Hmm. Um, but to be honest with myself, I'm more of a um, non-dualist, you know, non-dualism, uh, Buddhist in my outlook. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating because I don't know how many people there is that grow up without any religion and then hmm. end up being a part of two at some point in their life. Yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of cool. And I mean, I think about it, you, you use the words exactly that I think about in my own life now, which is like a mm-hmm. spiritual journey and like the importance mm-hmm. of that. Um, cause you know, that's one of the main things that I think I'm thinking about and I'm curious your take on this. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you, 
how do you encourage people to go down these journeys? Because there is a lot of, you can view it in a very black and white way, which is like, oh, this, you know, this is bad, or there's wars about this, people fight about this, or mm-hmm. well, this isn't true because science says this, and then it stops people's desire 100% to like go down this journey. So as an educator, I'm curious how you attempt all people's minds to understand the value because there's clearly so much value in exploring it and to learn right. the lessons and to learning right. the practices and to, right. and then like you did, you know, making mm-hmm. it your own and understanding what you believe, but mm-hmm. it's hard to get mm-hmm. to that point if you never even want to go down. it. so what's, how do sure. you open that conversation and, yeah. and just present new ideas to these students who may have a very fixed mindset about these sort of things? Right. Well, I think a lot of what I found now is a lot more openness in students because um, I've been teaching for a while. I was, you know, like I said, it's my 22nd year at Gustavus and I was teaching several years before coming to Gustavus and sort of um, I was mapping the different generations. This is almost three generations of students, oh, not quite. And although there was always interest in Eastern religions early, like in the 90s when I started teaching, now there is a lot of openness, it seems like, uh, at least you know, from my experience here at Gustavus, even though it's a Lutheran school, it's very open. There's a multi-faith center we have now. And so the environment is very positive for students to explore. Now, in terms of personal exploration, I can't, um, how can I put this? I can't really light the fire, if you will. Students, you know, when they take my courses, I always get a core number of students who are actually interested and they're already starting to search. And I think in terms of you ask as an educator, as a college professor, for instance, um, my role, of course, is not to proselytize, obviously, and not to you know, push a student one way or the other, but just to present the history, teachings, and some practices of these various traditions that I teach. And then, you know, and if they have personal questions, then I can answer that. Like, you know, what was your experience? And I know you meditate, Professor know. And so then I can talk to them about, about my own experiences if they want me to. Mm, okay. And so it's, it's, but I know, I know it's, it's actually, I found that when students are asking questions, wow, they're really asking questions. Some students take my courses for just interest and they're just curious, which is fine. And I have some students who take my courses because it fulfills gen ed requirements. <laughs> you know? so I right. have a mix of those three kinds of students and, you know, um, but my my disposition is always openness. I'm ready to answer questions and be very honest from where I come from. At the same time, I don't want to push anybody in a particular way. You know, people need to make their own decisions, and I'm not here to convert people to Buddhism or Catholicism or right. any kind of tradition. Yeah, well, th- yeah, that puts you in an interesting position too, because. <clears throat> it almost makes you a good neutral ground to talk to. Cause I feel like a lot of times people may be scared away to go talk to one side or the other because they feel like they might get, you know, can or try to get converted, but you right. almost have just this open neutral perspective on, on it. So that's cool. And I'm curious. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, there's evidence kind of about all these new things in the Western culture of that Eastern influence coming over here. Right. I'm curious why you think that shift happened and why mm. one, like people are starting to explore more of these Eastern traditions, but I'm also actually curious the other way around. If you know, like what is the Eastern, I guess like the traditional Eastern community think of that shift? Is there any, I don't know, like just the dynamics between that. I'm curious if you have anything to say about that. 
I think I'm speaking very generally now, and it, it will change in that country to country, region to region. But generally speaking, those countries that are, let's say, Buddhist, they're experiencing something similar to um, Christianity here. Uh, less people, even though some people may still be spiritual, uh, less people attending churches, you know, church attendance is going down, um, people exploring other traditions. And in Buddhist countries in Asia, for instance, some of the countries are experiencing the same thing in terms of Buddhism. Hmm. And, um, and if you look at a, <coughs> excuse me, look at a country like Korea, for instance, huge number of Christians. I mean, it is a, you know, almost a third, over a third of Koreans now in South Korea are Christians. Interesting. Um, primarily Presbyterians, but you have Catholics and Lutherans and I just have historical reasons for that. Uh, and I think uh, Christianity is growing in the two-thirds world. Countries in Africa, huh. South America, I mean, it's really, and so the majority of Christians are coming from uh, those countries um, outside of the U.S. and Europe. And so Christianity has be, is That's becoming fascinating. an international, global, I mean, it's always what's global, but it's right. less, certainly less European and not less American. And hmm. what you have, though, however, with uh, the Asian traditions coming to the United States, I think we can make a division between immigrants coming here who come from Buddhist countries and want to establish Buddhism here. It's less the meditation and more of the communal practices and rituals and going to mm. temple once a week. Um, it's usually the Americans who are mostly uh, Christian who have let go of that or were disenchanted for whatever reason and looking for a new tradition. They're the ones who have converted or become Buddhist, but they're actually practicing meditation. This is more of a uh, North American and European phenomenon. People who mm. are, you know, European, North American, and then they, they convert to Buddhism. So, so there's different kinds of uh, Buddhist phenomena, and it really depends on which culture you go to. Um, one thing I should say that um, in the United States, for instance, because there's so much stress on neuroscience, there are a lot of atheists taking up uh, Buddhist meditation, they're totally, what they want to do is get rid of all the doctrine and the cosmology and just do the practices because they're yeah. secular. And someone once quipped, and I think maybe he, he is correct, Buddhism may kind of get absorbed into this you know, upper middle class, upper class um, educated elite, and it may kind of, uh, the tradition itself may kind of dissolve you know, in terms mm. of the cultural and doctrinal um, uh, cosmological aspects of Buddhism. So, I don't know if that's true, but you know, somebody stated that may be the case. Yeah. So it's a complex, like all things. Very complex. Yeah. I mean, that's how I was introduced to it. Right. And kind of the neuro right. neuroscience perspective. So, I mean, again, that's just one example. So I can't speak for the mass population, but that's, isn't that interesting how like, I don't know, the Christian Christianity is kind of growing in the areas where they were Buddhist and it's like that, that, back and forth role is I just find that to be fascinating and I yeah. wonder how that's going to like continue to to evolve and um so you so you um yeah I was gonna say so you kind of specialize a bit right in the inter-religion dialogue between the Buddhist and the Christian religions correct I don't specialize I'm involved in interfaith involved. dialogue okay encounter. I specialize in Buddhist philosophy specifically okay. Indian Buddhist philosophy. And that's what I love to read and translate and, you know, and then teach. And so uh, that would be my, my area of specialization, okay. my true love, if you will. 
for true love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm curious on, you know, just, and again, maybe this is just students being ready for it, but has there been, has there been any common theme over the course of your, what is it, 22 years or? Yeah, this is my 22nd years? year. Yeah. Um, where students struggle with a certain aspect of opening mm-hmm. that conversation up. I mean, I got to imagine over the course of the year, you've had people who have joined your mm-hmm. classes who, you know, maybe we're taught like that this is an absolute truth. I feel like religion can be an interesting topic because we can be presented it as like an absolute truth. And has there been a certain kind of theme where you've noticed that there's a struggle in in a certain aspect of the conversation? And how do you step back and be able to present that student new ideas? I mean, I, you can only do so much, as you said, but right. I'm just, again, I'm curious about right. the method yeah, you're taking because I want... I want to understand how to, you know, bring, I mean, with anything, with politics, religion, like how do you bring up other sides of the story in a way that doesn't make people feel like you're destroying their truths about the world or, you know. Right. Right. Great question. Um, I've been kind of fortunate um, because uh, even in my beginning days at Gustavus, the students who took my courses, and by the way, I should say that Zen was taught and world religions uh, was taught for 20 years prior to my coming to Gustavus. So okay. it was already um, a sense in the religion department that this is something that's important. And so when I came to Gustavus, um, I never had any problem in terms of students saying, you know, you're teaching the devil's work. That happened in another institution, which I'll get to. Oh, <laughs> man. If we have time. But uh, <laughs> I want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, so. There, have, there were some students who were struggling, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, because they actually felt um, some resonance with Buddhism, but they were also committed to their Christianity. And, you know, they'd bring that up once in a while with me. And I'd say, well, you know, it's, it's, you can be rooted in a tradition, but be open to others. And you can be committed to one tradition and still learn about, you know, you don't have to be Buddhist to understand Buddhism, right? Right. But that was not prevalent. What was prevalent was, was trying to get the students to understand the philosophical ideas and concepts of Buddhism. You know, like um, dependent co-origination, like everything is dependent. There's, there's radical interrelatedness. There's emptiness, non-duality, Buddha nature. These are concepts that are so, um, at least on the surface, very different than Christianity. It was hard for them to kind of link, and not, how to how to this, find a reference point to begin understanding. Mm. So I've tried to develop examples I use in class that are very, very concrete to help them understand um, concepts like, let's say, non-duality. And what is non-duality? Non-duality is, okay, well, the kind of Buddhism I study, and I study Mahayana Buddhism generally, and a particular school, the so-called mind-only school, duality is the um, sort of foundation of illusion. There's an assumption that there is a separation between the subject or the perceiver and what is perceived. And it's like literally in Sanskrit, grahaka grahya, grahaka, the grasper, and grahya, what is grass. So that's duality. That's the split between the perceiver and the hmm. perceived, the object perceived. And what the, this Buddhists claim, most Mahayana Buddhists claim that this is a mental construction, which is the cause for further illusion. So part of the meditative process is to understand how this operates and ultimately to un- uproot duality. So there is a, I can put this, maybe a oneness in your experience. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the highest level of awareness in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, for instance, one term they use is non-dual awareness. 
awareness which has no distinction between you know self and other you know perceived and perceived yeah and that's a that's a concept that you know students when they first hear it eh, okay and then they start thinking about it and it gets more perplexing for people the more they think about it so my right. job is to help them you know um, by using various examples to say well actually maybe you've experienced this for instance before and you, you didn't really conceptualize it but it's maybe it's like this and so it's been a, a wonderful challenge for me to do that's very enjoyable yeah yeah cool i know it, i know in the the Tur theravada tradition that's not quite uh uh the issue because it's it's not dualist but it's not necessarily non-dualist either okay kind of buddhist traditions you have in like thailand or sri lanka yeah it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of a bit, I don't know if this is similar or different, but when I was in Thailand, I, it was the first time I heard that quote, which was like, I am not who I think I am. I am not who right. you think I am. I am who I think that you think that I am. And you right. hear that quote and you're like, wait, what? And then you think about it and you're like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> so some of these things take a little bit, obviously to kind of like let them sink in and think about it. Um, yeah, our sense of ourselves is really all these multiple projections that we have about ourselves and others and how others look at us. And um, yeah, the Buddhists call that, um, the term is, uh, one, that's one example of prapancha, which means mental or conceptual proliferation. It's like a mm. force that confuses you. So many concepts and projections and counter projections that you really lose sight of perhaps a more simple reality, you know, the, the nounness of your experience, the givenness of your experience. Yeah. And, Interesting. So if, if I was like, okay, so if I was a student and I was coming to your, you know, office hours or whatever, or after class and, you know, I was interested in, you know, having inner, inner religious conversations or mm -hmm. studying more about um, different religions, um, would there be a piece of advice you would give someone going into that sort of journey or that um, desire for more knowledge? Yeah, and again, it really depends on where the student's coming from. If the student is curious and wanting to maybe try a different, I would, I would respond in one way. If the student is interested but concerned because perhaps they're very committed Catholic or committed Lutheran, you know, I would say something like, by all means, stay committed because your tradition is very rich. But think of it this way. Um, if you ever studied a foreign language, you know that your, you know, your mother tongue, English, for instance, gets better. Because the more you learn about another language, the grammar, the, the, the sentence structure, it's in comparison and contrast mm. with your own, you know, you know, mother tongue, in this case, English. And did you notice your English getting better as you learned another language? And they said, usually, yes. Mm. But think of religion that way. When you study Buddhism, Hinduism, other tradition outside of you know, say Christianity, you can really highlight the uniqueness, the difference between Christianity and other traditions, but also the, the common ground. Right, that, that there's a lot of um, common ideas, maybe ideas of ethics or virtue that you can actually compare and say, well, they agree on this. It's not that they're the same. And so studying mm. another language uh, helps you learn your own language. Studying another religion helps you learn your own language. Yeah. But that's I, something that was actually um, uh, used a long time ago, a uh, 19th, 20th century um, uh, scholar, Max Mueller said something like that, I believe. Okay. Yeah, but that's so. It's not my own thing. I mean, I learned that from my professor, who learned it from his professor, or her professor. So. Yeah. No, that's good advice. Um, and I, I was curious. You just mentioned too. I wanted to ask you also, um, because again, I'm 
in my own journey trying to pull out some some similarities right because i think that again you look at the major world conflicts and it's always focused on the differences but i'm curious like is there any and it could just you could just label one or as many as you want of like similarities you've seen across all religions that just kind of hold true as like okay in all religions there's here's the core philosophy or here's one you know thing that is similar do you have any examples uh, like that that you want to share yeah. Yeah, I think that um, in terms of when you mentioned religious conflict, that's very complex, includes economics, politics. Sometimes it could be uh, people living in a religious worldview that's metaphysically so different. So that could cause conflict. But a lot of times it has to do with, you know, all these different, um, you know, uh, murky areas, mm. <laughs> politics and uh, power and things like that. But in terms of, what you, in terms of your, your other question, in terms of what, what religions share, I think there are a handful of virtues um, that, that these uh, traditions share, a sense of justice, for instance, doing what's right, um, a sense of uh, internal character formation. You know, whether you look at Catholicism or Buddhism, they both really advocate, uh, they're advocates of um, ethical and spiritual formation. Over a long time, you do these practices that are virtuous and eventually you become virtuous. Uh, compassion is usually something that's shared across many traditions, you know, neighborliness, uh, being a part of a community. And I think that um, if you list all these different aspects, these shared values, the differences wouldn't be, um, differences wouldn't include a direct opposition necessarily, but how they prioritize them. Like mm. justice may be more prioritized in some Christian traditions and maybe compassion or mindfulness will be um, prioritized in some Buddhist traditions. Okay, that's, but I think, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 so I think, though, that most traditions share um, some, some, I guess, core values, you can you put it. It's just that you know, there are different cultural iterations and, again, different uh, prioritizations based on the history and culture of the tradition. Yeah, cool. You mentioned um, community in there. I want to I wanna bring that up because I'm – another thing that I'm, you know, fascinated about in the world is – you know, places define community. Right. Um, and I think that a religious community or a spiritual community is definitely a place. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, the, the numbers, uh, people going to church has been declining or being a part mm-hmm. of religious communities. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious your thoughts overall on, on that trend. Again, I'm trying to tie some of these things to like bigger issues of like mental health and loneliness. And, you know, the fact that we're losing some of these communities could maybe be a bad thing for supporting those sort of movements. So maybe just talk about what you think the power of community and a religious practice is, and then maybe how you'd hope to see it evolve in the future and how we could try to find ways to keep people coming together and practicing together. Right. Right. I think, um, well, as always community can be, it's, I think overall it's a positive thing and necessary. Uh, there's always a double sword, right? Some communities hold some values that may not, ring true to you, right? And mm. you may have some internal conflict with other members. Um, they may not be as open as you, for instance, uh, just as a hypothetical example. But what community does usually is, is support, ideally, the spiritual growth of each individual and also show that um, when, we, when we live in this world, struggling this world, we do so together. And I think that... Um, Communities in the United States, especially, may have a hard time because we're so individualist in our uh, conception of ourselves. You know, 
individual struggle, we can make it ourselves, which isn't wrong, but the, I think there was an overemphasis on individuality. And yeah. um, that could certainly lead toward the fraying of over time and over communities having certain pressures politically, economically, that could you know, lead to the fraying of community. Um, so ideally, the community is supportive of the spiritual growth of the individual and everybody else. Um, the other thing is we're being formed anyway, I think, in culture. So um, it's not as if uh, we can choose to be formed or not. Um, and what I mean by that is when we're growing up in a you know, global capitalist you know, world, it's a global cons consumerism. And that has effects on us in ways that, you know, we, you know, we think, well, we're individual, we're not being formed, but we really are. The fact that you can go on your iPhone, and I do this sometimes too, you can order Christmas presents on Amazon. You don't have to go out and go shopping anymore, for instance. Little things like that, social media, there's a lot of addiction now to social media. All these things are really forming who we are as human beings. And that, I think, is a problem. When you mentioned mental health, I think we're being formed in ways to be unsatisfied with what we have, to want more and more and more. And this is just ballooning up into all sorts of you know, psychological problems, and which actually then become physical problems too, because mind and body are connected. So hypothetically or ideally, a community can also, can also be a way of guarding against that. The community mm -hmm. can say, no, we hold these virtues as more important than how much stuff you get, right? We hold right. these virtues, like the virtue of compassion, uh, or um, loving kindness or justice higher than um, your status in society or what kind of job you get. Not that those are unimportant, but if those are the only things you have, you're, be, you're becoming that kind of person. And right. religious or spiritual communities can guard against that and, and hopefully form people who bring into the world a sense of a greater sense of justice and peace and compassion. Yeah. So that's another important you know, uh, aspect of community. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's a great point. I, again, when I think about like the neuroscience behind all the stuff mm -hmm. I've been learning and mm -hmm. people talk about like gratitude or joy practices and how, you know, you're just bringing those good thoughts into your head more. And then that's what you end up thinking about more as you mm -hmm. practice it continually. And it's, mm -hmm. it reminded me of that. Cause you, like you said, if you only are thinking about what is just happening out there and you're never, you know, having conversation or spending time thinking about compassion and love, mm -hmm. those things can just kind of get lost, not intentionally, right. but the community definitely helps foster, foster that. I, I really yeah. liked that, uh, that point that you brought up there. And I like, and I like the word formation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I like the word formation because not only is that a, a, a metaphor, it's also literal. I mean, you're literally forming your synapses. If you do gratitude meditations every morning over time, your brain will change. <laughs> your brain will be <laughs> that's formed. crazy. Isn't that crazy? And then so uh, it's actually uh, that's number one point. The second point is it's also interesting. I'm, I'm not a what they call a physical determinist. I don't think your brain causes your thoughts and causes it does, but it's never a one way street. Because if you can imagine in your imagination, if you can imagine a better way of living, a more compassionate way of living, a more mindful way of living a more just way of living. That's a concept, that's an ideal. And when you take that ideal and start practicing it every day, that ideal will begin changing your physical makeup. It'll start changing your brain. Hmm. And so I do not believe that's in this wild. sort of The brain is, 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 is the basis and it just uh, causes everything else. That's true to an extent, but 
our creative, moral, and spiritual imagination can do so much to change our physical selves in, in beneficial ways. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's cool when you think about it like that, right? Like your brain is changing. That's a, that's a powerful thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and never, yeah, and we're, we're never fully determined by our brains. We can change our brains, you know, intentionally, you know? Yeah. So we do have a lot of power, and that's the other thing. I understand the, um, um, the need to uh, respond to issues of justice, but there's a lot of, uh, how can I put this? Well, I'm going to be a little maybe controversial. That victim mentality, right? That somehow um, the world impinges on us, and, and a lot of times it's tough. It's suffering. I'm the one that denied that. There's injustice or suffering. But I think that if you feel that only the external matters, you know, how are you going to develop an internal reservoir to, you know, um, to weather the storms of life, right? And I think yeah. this is where the older religious traditions, pre-modern traditions had it right, that you can develop a spiritual interiority, not individualism, and I don't mean without community, but you can develop an internal, uh, an in- interiority, a spiritual or an ethical interiority that can stand up against the external pressures. Because no matter how you try to change the outside, and we should try as best as we can to make things better, at least we do suffering, you can't control it completely. And there's no doubt something's going to happen, whether it's you know, getting sick, whether it's um, the social crisis, the political crisis, or economic crisis. Things happen in life. And I think the other side of both community and formation is that it gives us a sense of inner strength that we can actually weather this storm, help others too. Because if a crisis comes along and you totally melt, you're no good to anybody else, <laughs> right. right? You really are. You, you just, you know, you're not you, but you know, anybody. If you just melt because external circumstances uh, are so negative, how are you going to actually, you know, assist others to bring them out of it? Maybe be a role model, perhaps. Maybe, you know, hold out your hand for somebody else. You can't do that unless you have some sort of inner strength. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Thanks for, mm-hmm. thanks for sharing all that. Um, oh, sure. Sure. I got a few more questions for you. This one, mm-hmm. this one's kind of a big, a big one. So I'll let you take a shot at it. Cause <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> it's it's kind of theoretical, but you know, again, I'm just, I'm curious where, you know, all this is taking us like, Certain sure. practices are becoming more popular here and certain become more popular here. And you, you teach and you know about multiple religions. Do you have any, you know, hopefully I would say positive theories on how you see religion evolving in the next 25, 50 years? I mean, wow, that's a big, big question. But I'm just, yeah. I'm just so fascinated to see like where, where this could go. I know you already mentioned like you think mm-hmm. that some of the Buddhist practices might get sucked into neuroscience a bit. but. Um, at least is there any, maybe I would ask some more specific questions. I think you'd like to see in the world that you would, you know, like to, um, that you would like to push for maybe in, in the next, in the later years of your life or whatever, some, some ideal or some practice that you would, you know, like to kind of try to spread out into the world. Right. Right. Well, I think that, um, one of the big issues is that we as a society and a culture, not just, I mean, globally, we really stress the rational, you know, uh, uh, the rationality, analytic aspect of our mind or brain, if you will, which is good. We need that. Absolutely. Uh, we need uh, first assessment. We need to analyze what we're doing. We need to, you know, calculate things, right? But I think what we're losing is that other aspect, 
some people call it the contemplative aspect of who we are. And I'm afraid that that is, is getting lost. And I'm not the first one to say there are a lot of philosophers and religious leaders in the past who've really said that humankind is moving in a direction that perhaps the more spiritual, intuitive, not knowledge, but wisdom aspect of who we are may be eclipsed by this overly rationalistic um, way of approaching things. Hmm. I would like to see um, in all aspects of life, including higher education, the um, understanding and perhaps the uh, stressing of a balance, a balance between the um, analytic and the meditative or the rational and the intuitive to maybe offer programs or courses that help students and help ourselves too to develop that aspect. Because I think it's in that realm, it's, again, it's not the only important one. I think we need both. But I think it's in the sort of the sense of, like I said, interiority, the contemplative aspect of who we are, that we can find inner strength and can, can actually trust um, feelings like compassion. Because you can always rationalize a way of feeling of trying to help someone. And I think that um, without that um, foundation of meditation or contemplation, we lose something central you know, to who we are. Now, as a friend of mine said, that's never going to go away because no matter how bad things get, people are, there's some people out there who want to think, contemplate, you know, um, uh, move into the realm of maybe metaphysics or a larger world vision. So maybe that'll never be gone. But I think as a culture and a society, we can do things to stress that aspect of who we are more. Mm. And I'm afraid that's going away. You know, the, in the higher ed, the humanities are being, you know, slashed and it's mostly about you know, STEM which again, it's important. I'm not I'm not against all that, but I think it's really going to be detrimental to our culture to continue this slide uh, where humanities and, and courses that make you think and contemplate are no longer taught or taught as a marginal part of the program, and not mm. something that's central. Yeah. So that's my great great answer. <laughs> great answer. Oh, <laughs> um, cool. Well, a few final questions about yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious. Um, we talked early on about your meditative practice. I'm curious if you have any other spiritual or religious habits that you follow and maybe why you do those certain things. Yeah. Um, how can I put this? I'm, well, I call myself a bad Buddhist <laughs> because <laughs> I, in my diet, I mean, I don't have a bad diet, but it includes meat. It includes chicken and, and sometimes steak. And so I, you know, I guess um, I, if I were to change, I may move toward, I was a vegetarian for a while. I may move toward that. Um, but I, like I said before, mostly it's how can you be mindful in the different situations you find yourself in everyday mm. life, in work life, family life, you know, recreational life. Um, the other thing I'm trying to do is uh, not fast as, yeah, kind of fasting, not eating um, for a length of time during the day. You know, I get hungry and can I maintain mindfulness and not react and, you know, grab a donut or, you know, eat something and just mm. sort of as an interior discipline for myself. Right. So a little bit of fasting, not anything extreme. And it's certainly not like the strong devotional aspect in, in like during Ramadan for the Muslims, nothing like that, but it is sort of extending the, the hours of the day where I don't eat. Mm. And that has some health benefits too. It's not purely spiritual, but um, it's certainly an aspect of spiritualism. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some articles on like intermittent fasting. I haven't looked yes. into it much, mm -hmm. uh, but 
Yeah, I know there definitely is some some detoxing that happens with your body when you do things like that. That supposedly is good for you. I don't know much about it yet, though. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I like to ask everybody this question who comes on the show just to get, you know, I think everybody has different things they prioritize and value. And I'm always curious, you know, in people's like different lives, what they think, you know, or what makes up the good aspects of their life, you know, whether it's friends, family and work or, you know, what are some of those things that you think, you know, I would, if in my lingo say, make your life extraordinary or make your life, you know, one that you uh, enjoy living. I'm curious mm-hmm. what aspects of your life that kind of make up that wholeness. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, friends and family, that, all that is important, I think, but because our jobs are a big part of our life, you know, eight hours a day or how many hours, you know, it takes up a lot of our time and energy. I think it's important to find something you love. You really need to do that. Uh, above, and I know that people in, in situations, financial situations, they may want to get a higher paying job. But you, if you think of yourself working, you know, decades and years and decades in something, if you don't love it, it can really wreck your, you know, wreck your, um, your soul, if you will. Uh, it can, mm. it can really wreck you inside. Um, what gets me going is teaching. I love to teach. I mean, like I said, this is like 22nd year at Gustavus. Mm. I still enjoy going to class. You know, sharing ideas, listening to students come up with their own ideas. I'm, and I learn a lot too in my, in my classes. I'm not yeah. too much giving out information. So it's that dynamic, that interplay of gaining new knowledge or new insights that I really love. And so um, that is, I think, the number one thing that I would stress, especially for students who are going to graduate soon and looking for something to do. You know, if you don't get up with a passion for it, you know, it's your life will be less than ideal. Mm. Yeah. Right. Sweet. Thanks for sharing that. Well, final, final two questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any sort of content or resources that you'd maybe send someone to if they were interested in getting a little bit more worldly view of religions? Um, I'm just curious if you know anything, uh, it's okay if you don't, but any sort of general resources that might be good for people to look into. Well, the first thing is, is um, understand what you're looking for. If you're looking for spiritual practices, there are a number of books out there you can buy. Um, um, some of my favorite authors are Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Pema Chodron. Um, there's several others too. Uh, somebody passed away, Joko Beck. So there are books out there that can really um, guide you in terms of your spiritual practice. So if that's what you want, that's, that's great. If you're looking for more knowledge about other traditions, uh, different practices, you know, what are the, you know, these important Jewish holidays or what are the primary practices of Islam or Buddhism? You know, a, a standard world religions textbook would be good. It'll give you a little history, a little bit of doctrine. So if you want that sort of survey knowledge, um, taking a world religions course or buying a book on world religions is, is good. Um, and then if you're a philosopher, for instance, um, there are a number of books out there that are deal with the conceptual issues that Buddhists over the you know, over, you know millennia <laughs> wrestling with you know this is your favorite benefit, right <laughs> logic uh i i'm both both the practice and the philosophy i like the balance okay. too you know uh, so there are a number of books out there and uh, sure i have recommendations i can give but uh, it really depends on what the person's looking for specifically okay cool well um final question i would just mm-hmm. say based off of our conversation if you just had some sort of closing message you wanted to leave with, uh, with listeners or what's on your heart right now. Uh, would you mind sharing that with us? 
Yeah, for me, um, it's important to have commitments and convictions. But if that's not um, founded on an openness or kindness of your heart, um, it, it's not a, I think, for, my, for me, it's not a full spirituality. There needs to be a sense of, um, I don't want to use a forgiveness. Forgiveness is kind of a loaded word, but maybe um, a sense of deep acceptance for your own imperfections and also recognizing the gifts that you bring to the world, but also in other people, because other people have flaws, you know? I mean, we all get annoyed, but, but can you look past that? Can there be a space in your heart to say, okay, this person has some flaws, but look past that and what is really the essence of the person? I guess the more you do that, the more you'll find uh, a sense of openness in yourself and maybe a more kind disposition to others. And that's really needed nowadays, given <laughs> all these, you know, anger and, reactions uh, different groups and so that yeah. would be the, sort of the open kindness of the, of the heart center if you will sweet mm -hmm. well uh well thanks for for agreeing to, to do this with me i really enjoyed mm -hmm. having a conversation with you and you sharing your 22 years plus of knowledge and uh i wish you the best <laughs> in your uh your future endeavors as well and continuing practicing and teaching yeah yeah well thank you very much and i was i really enjoyed this and i think you're doing a wonderful job you have great questions keep doing this because when when people see others dialoguing in a constructive open way it's a good model for how we can be with each other so thank you for, for doing this podcast thanks for tuning in to another episode of live an extraordinary life i hope you enjoyed today's guest john cha and hope that he showed you a bit the value of going on a spiritual journey of opening yourself up to learning about other religions whether you're religious or not right now and the things that it can teach you, whether it be ethics or morals or compassion or the more contemplative side of your brain rather than the analytical and always rational side. So I hope that you can have some good reflection and thought after this episode. And as always, people, go live an extraordinary life.